The Office of Personnel Management is looking to formalize an automated way to screen federal employees and generally modernize how agencies evaluate whether someone is suitable for a trusted position. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the details. And Justin, are we talking about people coming into the government as new employees or prospective employees or existing ones that want to move up the food chain? We're talking about both here, really, with OPM's new proposal. It it came out in a suitability and fitness vetting rulemaking published by OPM in the Federal Register just last week. Comments are due April 3rd. One of the big changes is shift trusted positions in government and and just about everyone in government to continuous vetting. That basically refers to an automated set of background checks that are continuously run. It depends on what position you're in, what level of trust the government is putting into you in terms of whether you have your records checked once a year or once every week. But the goal here is to really automate a lot of those processes rather than putting employees through periodic reinvestigation where every five or so years you have a background investigator come in and do all these records check in in sort of a manual process. It sounds identical to the way the Defense Department is doing it for cleared people, which is what OPM used to do. Exactly. It's all a part of Trusted Workforce 2.0, which covers basically every aspect of vetting the workforce. And the big muscle movements we've seen so far have been under the National Security Workforce, moving just about all of them now to continuous vetting. And so these latest rules for OPM apply to people who are not in that national security workforce, but who are in trusted positions of government. In OPM's view, what is the advantage of this way of doing it? It's quicker, cheaper, and will it actually get better screening done? Exactly. One, you'll flag issues a lot sooner if someone is arrested. Notionally, the system will kick that up to someone and flag it for someone so that an agency can be aware that their employee may have been arrested or something like that and can look into it. It's also expected to save money. Continuous vetting, as I mentioned, is sort of an automated process. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency provides CV services. It costs $3 a month for a subscription for each individual who's in sort of a low-risk public trust position. By comparison, a five-year reinvestigation would cost about $40 monthly if you stretch out the cost of that reinvestigation. Um, So they're looking at some pretty big cost savings here uh, from OPM's estimates. Plus, to a greater extent than was the case 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the public and commercial sources of data to do continuous vetting are now available that looks at people's finances and court records and all of this. Exactly. They're taking advantage of the fact that there's just a lot of data out there on different aspects of whether, uh, you know, a person is trustworthy. And what about that initial background investigation when someone applies for a federal job? How would that work? So you still would need an initial background investigation done by a, you know, a human investigator. This isn't something that they're looking to necessarily automate to the extent that they're looking to replace these reinvestigations entirely with continuous vetting. You still need to have that first initial look at a person. What OPM is trying to do with this rulemaking, though, is apply more consistency across these standards that people are judged by after their initial investigation so that no matter what kind of position you're applying to in the civil service or a contractor or whatever else, they're all kind of using the same types of standards so that you can more easily move across government 
and contractors. And this is part of a larger modernization effort of that whole suitability and fitness standards process for OPM. And by fitness, we don't mean whether someone can run a mile in six minutes. And so what else are they proposing in this whole zone besides the continuous vetting? They're looking to change some factors. And, and one a couple of those changes really hone in on basically domestic extremist activities, making sure agencies don't hire individuals who are affiliated with those types of activities. They're actually looking to break out and be more specific with the an expanded set of factors about around basically activities designed to overthrow the U.S. government. They add some more language in there on acts of force or violence designed to deny other individuals their constitutional rights, attempts to indoctrinate others to actions in furtherance of a quote-unquote illegal act. So they're looking to get a little bit more granular to prevent folks from joining government who probably shouldn't be there. Yes, I'm catching a whiff of social media surveillance in here, too. Well, they didn't discuss that specifically, and that is something that, you know, security organizations in government have been wrestling with is to what extent do they look at social media. Of course, they'll say that they do not want to infringe on everyone's First Amendment rights. But at what point does, you know, a post on Twitter indicate that someone might be a threat in a trusted position in government? And those are some of the questions they're wrestling with. And what's OPM doing now to they want to change how agencies deal with people in drug and alcohol use or abuse situations. Yeah, they're looking to clarify how agencies should look at past alcohol and drug use if that comes up in the course of a a background investigation or, or part of this continuous vetting. One of the proposals would remove the requirement that evidence of rehabilitation is quote unquote substantial. So it would just have to be some sort of evidence of rehabilitation, essentially lowering the barrier to employment for those who may have previously been rejected over past alcohol and drug illegal drug use. You could see how that might factor into past marijuana use, which is something that officials want to amend a little bit so that you can cast a wider net. Also, they changed the alcohol abuse factor to excessive alcohol use instead kind of accounting for an individual's problematic misuse of alcohol, like binge drinking or heavy drinking over a period of time that suggests they wouldn't be requisite for performing some of these government duties. And would they look at, say, enrollment in a rehabilitation type of program or a 12-point program, that type of thing, as a good sign? Just as over on the DOD side, they're looking at people who seek psychiatric care for mental illness as a good thing, as a, as a strengthening factor in their security. Absolutely. I think that's one of the goals here is to signal to people and tell agencies explicitly that they should be looking at this evidence of rehabilitation, of of efforts to overcome certain issues as part of the, the whole person concept, as they call it, when they're evaluating an individual. So all of these new procedures and automations, when do they take place and can OPM simply move ahead with them? On its own. So some of the the factor changes that I mentioned, OPM can move ahead with them on their own, but they're going through this rulemaking first to essentially put them into regulations, and they'll have to go through that whole process in these coming months. Continuous vetting uh, is not formalized in those regulations, as I mentioned. That still has to go through the process, but it's already happening. It's already happening, as I mentioned, to Defense Department employees and contractors, and it's looking they're looking to spread it to the rest of the federal government as well. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say and on, a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes and um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information and lo and behold I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. 
uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but, uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and and the thing that that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be uh, it's not just school age it's it's uh, you know we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams uh, bowl together golf together play soccer basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, dot on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.